Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. It's Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to you. We're focusing on the family this morning as we continue our study in Ephesians. Specifically, family redemption is in view as Paul continues to unfold the will of the Lord for wise walking children of light. Today, we come to Paul's commands for children and for parents. Paul is going to give us the basics of family redemption. And so if you've come today and you want a good family life, you've come to the right place, pay close attention. It's in the text today what you're looking for. Now, some of you already know what this looks like, family redemption, a good family life. You came from good Christian homes where both parents desired the glory of God in their lives and for their family. They brought you to church. You were taught about the Bible. You had rules at home that guided your heart to the knowledge of your own sinfulness and your need for a Savior. However, some of you did not come from a stable, two-Christian parent home. Perhaps your parents were totally secular or rabid atheists or Roman Catholics, and you knew nothing of sin and salvation. You might have learned how to get along with others and be a good person by worldly standards, but you only learned to do that in order to build your own kingdom because that's exactly what was taught to you by your parents. Perhaps the worst kind of upbringing, though, is when two parents call themselves Christians but totally disobey God in respect to all of his commands for children in the Bible as far as raising them. The truth of salvation may have been floating around you, but it was in doctrinally lightweight, short on sin and repentance churches that your parents would attend with you. You know these churches well. They're the ones with the loud rock concert worship service and the pastor with the ripped jeans and the sermonette for Christianettes. You know these ones. And so you heard about the love of Jesus but you never saw love actually lived out in your own home. It is the case that your parents would have made it clear to you that we discussed Jesus Christ's love, but love of self was practiced in the home. Brothers and sisters, God has a glorious design for families. Any family can be redeemed regardless of where it's been, but it will not happen on your own terms. Family redemption happens according to God's perfect plan, which demands of you that you die to yourself that you live each day to the glory of God. You are called then, if this is the case, to expect obedience from children, to punish sin and rebellion, and instruct children in righteousness. And so the question would go out to you, is this for you? Is this the message you want? I would hope the answer is yes. You're at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, where Paul issues the last of five walking commands He is concerned with how Christians live their lives. The idea that you say in your heart that Jesus did something to me and I love him, it matters. And so Paul is going to make demands and commands of your behavior. His aim is to bring great glory to God by telling you the glorious extent of God's salvation of you. Even the fact that God prepared good works from eternity past that you're supposed to walk in in this life. It is the case that you did not accept Jesus into your heart. He overpowered your heart, and you've made recognition of that afterward. We do not ask Jesus to take the wheel of our lives. If he wants the wheel of your life, he's going to come and take it from you. That's the beauty of the gospel. God saves. He applies his salvation onto us powerfully. That's why we pray the way that we do, very Calvinistically. We pray the power of the sovereignty of God on somebody. I've never prayed, John, save yourself. I've always prayed, God, save John. Consider these Bible verbs for, as far as salvation with me, if you will. 
Let me ask you, who is the subject and who's the object of these verbs? Listen carefully. These are all Bible verbs, by the way. Draw, call, save, elect, adopt, redeem, wash, cleanse, regenerate. Friends, you are not the subject of these verbs. God is the subject. How blessed are you to be the object of these verbs? For this reason, Paul tells us in Ephesians 4.1, as a result of the great salvation that you've been gifted, walk worthy of the calling into which you have been called. Verse 17, he says, no longer walk in your old sinful Gentile ways. In chapter 5, verse 2, he says, walk in love as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us. Chapter 5, verse 8, he says, walk as children of the light. You've been pulled out of darkness. And in chapter 5, verse 15, he says, where you are at now in the text, Paul says, verse 15, therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. And so then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And you need to ask at that moment, what is the will of the Lord for me? Friends, the will of the Lord for you is relationship redemption, primarily with God, the vertical relationship, and then horizontally. That is the message of the cross of our Savior. It is a message of relationship redemption. We are walking wisely when we are doing relationship redemption. From chapter 5, verse 18 through chapter 6, verse 9, Paul provides 10 relationship redemption strategies which cover both our eternal relationships and our earthbound relationships. Our eternal relationships are redeemed when we are, in chapter 5, verses 18 through 20, filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another, in the church, singing to Jesus, and giving thanks to God our Father. Our earthbound relationships come in view in three pairs of relationships, and for four weeks we labored through the marital relationship redemption plan for husbands and wives in chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. This week we get to consider family redemption, focusing on children and parents in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 6. Next week we'll look at occupational redemption, focusing on the relationship between slave and master, in chapter five, 6, verses 5 through 9. So then let's read the text together and consider Paul's desire that we walk wisely, spirit-filled, doing the will of the Lord, which is relationship redemption, especially at chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, where we see family redemption. Let's look at chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Family redemption it starts like this. Paul says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Reflecting on this passage, James Montgomery Boyce says, Nothing in all history has done so much for the elevation and development of children as Christianity. The new relationship of parent and child and child to parent brought by, a Christian, by the Christian gospel stands forth, he says, like sunshine after a dismal storm, some of which we saw yesterday here in Spokane. The dismal storm of parenting and care for children boy speaks of has everything to do with Jewish and Roman cultural traditions of the first century. Love for children was not the highest priority under Roman family law. The title of this law was Patria Potestas which is Latin for power of the father. That was the order of the day. Can I have you turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 21? Deuteronomy 21. Pastor John MacArthur says, 
By the Roman law of patria potestas, a father had virtual life and death power not only over his slaves, but over his entire household. He could cast any of them out of the house, sell them as slaves, or even kill them, and be accountable to no one. A newborn child was placed at the father's feet to determine its fate. If the father picked it up, the child was allowed to stay in the home. If the father walked away, it was simply disposed of, much as aborted babies are in our own present day. Discarded infants were, who were healthy and vigorous were collected and taken each night to the town forum where they were picked up and raised to be slaves or prostitutes. Seneca was a Roman statesman of renown in the first century. He said, we slaughter a fierce ox, we strangle a mad dog, we plunge a knife into a sick cow, children born weak and deformed we drown. How could regard for children get any lower than it was 2,000 years ago? How could patristic power and abuse get any greater? It makes you wonder, how did this come to be? How did this come to be the case? In many respects, though, it's not too difficult to see how it came to be the case. Sinful men exploited the righteousness of God over years and years and years. You're in Deuteronomy 21, verse 18 where Moses is explaining various laws to Israel before they take possession of the promised land. He is giving out guidelines to ensure personal, cultural, and national honor. As God's chosen people, these are the rules for the glory of God and the good of the people. Speaking, to, uh, speaking of family relationships then, Moses says in Deuteronomy 21, verse 18, read the text with me. He says, If any man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father or his mother... And when they chastise him, he will not even listen to them. Then his father and mother shall seize him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gateway of his hometown. They shall say to the elders of his city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death. So you shall remove this evil from your midst, and all Israel will hear of it and fear. Jewish law, the law of God, is the source of paternal authority over children, even unto death. This passage greatly informs our understanding of God's design for family relationships. Can you imagine the zeal of the parents to raise obedient children, to avoid the terror and embarrassment and shame of a rebellious son being publicly stoned to death at the city gate? Can you imagine the resolve of the elders for honor and purity in their city, helping to teach and train other men to raise their kids in the fear of the Lord. Can you imagine the righteous fear of God in every child who would ever hear that such a thing would have happened? Jewish law's insistence on capital punishment is right and good and just and very easily became a practice that ungodly men embraced and exploited to arrive at total submission of their kids. Regarding the submission of children to parental authority, John Stott would remind us that submission does not depend on special revelation. You don't need God's law to get to this understanding. Submission is part of the natural law which God has written on all human hearts, says John Stott. He says, indeed, virtually all civilizations have regarded the recognition of parental authority as indispensable to a stable society. And so men heavy-handedly wield their power and authority. 2,000 years ago, Roman and Jewish societies may have had stability, but with that stability, they did not have love. They did not have love. 
into this evil, into the evil of the environment that was driven 2,000 years ago. Enter the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel of redemption in his blood. What happens as a result of the entrance of Christ and his gospel into this world? Through his humble life and sacrificial death on the cross, Jesus ushered in a whole new world order for those who have been given ears to hear of it. Jesus restored honor and dignity to the little people. We like that. You'll also notice that Jesus said definitively in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Brothers and sisters, that would even apply to the law that's in front of you in Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21, which focuses on rebellion. And some might say, but this Deuteronomy law is too harsh. It's too harsh. But I would caution you, is this too harsh? Or have you become too soft? How can you say that death by stoning is worse than your children's chosen life of death by stoning through drug addiction or pornography or sexual addiction? How can you say that death by stoning is worse than living by lies? Lies like the lies of the sexual revolutionaries who are telling your kids that they can choose their gender, get gender-affirming hormone treatments, and plan a gender reassignment surgery from their school counselor's office without your knowledge. Somehow that's a better life? Somehow that's more honoring? Emily Cow of the Heritage Foundation, in an article dated January 15th of 2019, she reported that last year, 2018, in Ohio, a judge removed a biological girl from her parents' custody after they declined to help her transition to male with testosterone supplements. The Cincinnati Children's Gender Clinic recommended these treatments for her gender dysphoria. Her parents wanted to treat her with counseling. Instead, the county prosecutor charged them with abuse and neglect. We live in a society today that would quickly send child protective services out to investigate you and remove your child from your custody and care based on your unwillingness to use their preferred pronouns or restrict any of their efforts to undergo gender-affirming surgeries. Isn't that disgusting? How the tables have turned. And yet we look back at God's law and we say, oh, that's evil, that's bad, that's the God of the Old Testament. Friend, we have fallen so far. We have the President of the United States telling you that you can pick your gender. Who is this? And yet the Word of God stands. The Word of God stands. I'm not saying that we should return to stoning rebellious children at all, but how did parenting slide this far? We are no longer the highly oppressive Roman society enforcing patria potestis. Now we are a Marxist socialist society given over to adoles adolescentia potestis, which is power to the children. Children in our new world order are taught that government is their mother and their father. We are all complicit in this 21st century indoctrination of our youth as millions and millions of children head off to their indoctrination camps five days a week, embracing 40 hours of lies, deception, coercion, and bullying by the subversive design of our world's Marxist socialist governing elites who have now placed children in charge of all of us as they fight for their rights and for social justice. Pastor John MacArthur says it this way, we have long lost the luxury of living in a society that gives some nominal support to the church and to Christian values. 
One of the major goals of Marxist socialism is to liberate children from the home and make them wards of the state. Humanistic, goal, or humanistic groups believe children must be liberated from traditional morals and values, parental authority, physical punishment, religion, nationalism, patriotism, and capitalism, and be allowed complete sexual freedom, including the right to homosexual marriage, abortions, and free information and devices for contraception, let alone today free gender transition surgery. Brothers and sisters, the biblical plan for family redemption is heavily under attack. Our world doesn't want this. The text that we're going to read and study today, our world doesn't want this. And it, it's, just, it's just a joy. It's a joy to be surrounded in a room with you, brothers and sisters in Christ, who say, not only do we want this, we must have this. This is the only way. The most help we can be to everyone out there is to take this and do this message, do this family redemption in our own houses. This would be the best for the whole world. Whether they listen to it or not, we will do this. And I'm pleased and blessed to be with you and share this message with you. Not from heavy-handed fathers, but rather as a result of passive, apathetic fathers and mothers, we've come to this. We've had apathetic fathers and mothers who have rejected the biblical mandate to bring up their kids in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. These parents even go to the extent of coddling and helping their children to not obey them, but rebel against them and ultimately against God. In that void, when parents do the coddling, when parents do the passivity, when they don't bring biblical discipline, into that void, into that failure, Satan and socialists have stepped and captured the hearts of countless millions and millions of the world's children. For our discipline, God is allowing all of it to happen right in front of our faces so that we see the depths of our own sin in the lives of our family and neighbors who, who do not believe this message. We must feel then that cultural shame and pain and guilt of this moment and ask questions like these. How can we fix it? How can we change course? Where must families turn? What must families do? You're in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1, where Paul moves his discussion to family redemption. It is here in the text that we've come to Paul's seventh of ten relationship redemption strategies. The seventh of ten relationship redemption strategies, you see it there in the text in the word children. The seventh of ten is this, children obey your parents. So we've already been through six relationship redemption strategies. And today, the overarching first point in your notes happens to be number seven. So you can start your outline with number seven today. We're at 7 of 10. Children, obey your parents. We're talking about family redemption. And we're talking about first looking at children who obey their parents. It is in Ephesians 6, 1 through 4 that Paul makes two fundamental demands of our children required for family redemption. Paul delivers here in the text two crucial commands for our children which direct their steps to righteousness. What two crucial commands for our children bring family redemption and personal righteousness? Number one, children, number one, obey your parents. And number two, honor your parents. That's a simple outline. It's pulled right out of the text. Grab the verb and you're off to the races. Number one, obey your parents. Number two, honor your parents. You see this in the text where we read in chapter 6, verse 1 again. Paul says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, 
which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Let's consider then family redemption by studying Paul's two crucial commands for our children. We'll begin by studying point number one in your notes then, the first of two crucial commands that bring family redemption. Number one, children, obey your parents. Children, obey your parents. The Greek word here in the text for children is the word technia, which speaks of dependent children, those who are still at home under the care of mom and dad and old enough at the same time to understand Paul's instruction. It is most certainly the case that in this first century context, when this letter was read to the Ephesians, that adults and children were gathered together in the same room. This fact has led many churches to discontinue children's ministry services and have whole families sitting together in the main sanctuaries of their churches. Now, where we understand the desire of many of our brothers and sisters in this practice, in their solid Bible-teaching churches, to keep families together and to do church authentically, like the apostolic church, we at Community Bible Church have, been, have not been convinced that our kids get any better Sunday morning experience than by the regular, age-appropriate preaching and teaching of God's Word by faithful dads and hospitality and care and instruction by loving moms who serve our families in the children's ministry. We're thankful for them, and if you'd like to sign up for that, please come see us. As opposed to you teaching your child obedience to you while I'm preaching to you, as opposed to that, our children's ministry workers are teaching your children to learn, obey, and enjoy the body of Christ in a classroom that fits their little size right now. And we just believe that that's such an incredibly great blessing for our families, for our community. Obey, then, in the, in the text is the word hupakuo, which means to obey, to follow, to be subject to. It shows up in Mark chapter 1, verse 27, where we are told that Jesus had unclean spirits obey him. In Mark 4, 21, the wind and sea do what to Jesus? They obey him. And at Ephesians 6, verse 5, Paul tells slaves to hupakuo, to obey their masters. It is interesting to note that in the course of this dialogue with redemption of relationships that Paul has mapped out, that he does not use hupakuo when it comes to telling wives to submit to their husbands. He doesn't tell wives to obey, he tells them to submit, hupatasso, and to respect their husbands. Children and slaves do the obeying. With the words, in the Lord, Paul is not saying only obey your parents if they're Christians. He's not saying that. He is providing the context for our children's obedience. He's providing the manner or the sphere of our obedience and that it is needed to be understood to be tied profoundly to the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is our Lord's manner? What, what is the sphere of our Lord's deliverance of obedience? Well, turn in your Bibles to Hosea 14. Hosea 14. The sphere and manner of in the Lord is the sphere and manner of righteousness. That's the sphere, the sphere of righteousness. And I want to talk about the sphere of righteousness with you. Righteousness is a great word for you to get your mind around because the Bible is repeatedly calling you to righteousness. Romans chapter 6 verse 18 calls you slaves of righteousness. You, you need to know righteousness, even as we think about the last two years. Is it righteous for a government to tell you to wear a mask when you're in church? Is that righteous or unrighteous? Everybody said? Yeah, that's unrighteous, right? And I know that. 
And so I want to make sure you know that too. It's unrighteous for them to say that. In Psalm 23, verse 3, David is extolling high praise to the Lord, who is his shepherd, saying, He guides me, my shepherd does, in paths of righteousness. So your shepherds are supposed to be guiding you there. For his namesake, our shepherd guides us there. The Hebrew word is sadiq, which means justice and rightness and righteousness. The Greek word is the word dikaiosune or dikaios. It means just and right and righteous. Very often, parents will be talking to their kids, and they'll say something along the lines of, well, that's not fair. And I would tell you, throw away the word fair in that context. Throw it away. It's a garbage word. What you mean to say is dikaios. What you mean to say is that is not just. That is not right. That does not conform to righteousness. You're in Hosea 14, verse 9. I want you to see how important righteousness is to the Bible. It just shows up everywhere. You need to see this as a pattern. Hosea 14.9, where at the very end of his prophecy, Hosea shares with all of Israel, and whoever wants to walk wisely in this life, the righteous sphere of Yahweh our God, saying in verse 9, whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but transgressors will stumble in them. Will you turn in your Bibles now to Titus 3, verses 5 through 7? I, I want to explore righteousness more with you and ask the question, where does righteousness come from? You see the need for righteousness in the Hosea passage, but there's a tension with righteousness that exists in the Bible, and I want to be plain with you. I want to express this to you. What is the tension of righteousness that is in the Bible? Who are the righteous? Can we know and do righteousness? Was it righteous of us to meet in opposition of the government when they were telling us to wear masks? Did we know that we were doing righteousness, the righteousness of God? Could you stand and say, I know what the righteousness of God is? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, he said this, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. And with that command, you have to understand that we need righteousness and a lot of it to get into heaven. But then in chapter 9, four chapters later in Matthew 9, 13, while eating bread with the tax collectors and sinners in Matthew's house, Jesus said in Matthew 9, 32, he said, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. In Romans chapter 3, verse 10, Paul declares, there's none righteous, no, not one. But at the very same time, in Psalm 1, Psalm 1 ends with a very familiar verse to us where the psalmist says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And your question has to be, how does the Bible fix the tension of righteousness? Who's righteous? How do you get to be righteous? There's none righteous, but the Lord knows the ways of the righteousness. How is a man made right with God? You're in Titus. Chapter 3, verse 5, where Paul says, God saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in dikaiosune, not on the deeds, basis of deeds that we have done in righteousness. You did no righteous deed to be saved, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, all verbs that point to the subject being God and the object being us, verse 6, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, 
So that being justified, dekaio, the verb form, justified, made righteous by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Brothers and sisters, we do righteousness because we were made righteous by God's salvation of us in Christ. Turn back in your Bibles to Ephesians 6, verse 1. So I had a little excursus there, a little soapbox moment for Pastor Oliver on righteousness. Amen. And you should be asking, Oliver, what does righteousness have to do with family redemption? It has everything to do with family redemption. You should ask the question, what does righteousness have to do with children obey your parents? You might ask in your head right now, Oliver, are you saying that children will only obey if they are God's elect and he saves them? No, I'm not saying that at all. Here's what I'm saying. The practice of righteousness is always right. It is always good. It conforms to the character of God. Righteousness is always redemptive. Godly parents will require obedience from their children because this is right, and it is good, and it is just, whether you are a believer or an unbeliever. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 6.1, isn't it? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Dikaios. Right on God's terms. Right according to God's character. Children, you young men and women, obedience is your top priority. It's your number one job. It was a joy as a dad when Ruby was three and four years old to say, Ruby, what's your number one job today? What's your job? To obey. Yes, you got that right. That's your job. Your job is to obey. Clint Arnold says, it is the God-given duty of parents to set boundaries for their children and expect them to obey. It's unloving to live without rules. It's unloving to believe that if you set a righteous expectation, a righteous rule, it's unloving to think that your children won't obey. And then you think in your head, well, why even set the rule anyway? Don't think that. Think that God wants you to set rules and, and believe that your children will obey because it's right and good that your children obey the parents of the Lord. When mom and dad tell you what to do, obey them in the Lord. Show them honor in your obedience. This will bring a flood of joy and family redemption to your homes. And that brings us to the second of two crucial commands that bring family redemption. The second of two crucial commands is this in the text. Honor your parents. Honor your parents. Number two in your notes. Paul goes further than obedience when he connects obedience to the Mosaic law in Ephesians 6.2. When he quotes Moses saying, Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Now, how many of you have failed to obey and honor your parents in your youth? What did that look like for you? No, don't start sharing with me. Don't start sharing. Just keep that to yourself, okay? We've got a wild generation being raised around us right now that does not have fear of God before their eyes, and they don't want to honor and obey their parents. It is also true that many parents are building their own little kingdoms, which often includes failing to demand obedience from their children. Did you catch that? Parents are building their own kingdoms, which often includes the failure to demand obedience on righteous terms of their, of their kids. It's easier if I don't give you rules, because if I give you rules, 
then you're going to find out that I'm not obeying the rules. And so you sin, I sin, we all sin. We're just going to get along, but I'm going to do it over here with all the money. And you just stay over there in the house. The results of this are disastrous. July 16th, last year. Fremont, California. 14-year-old boy stabs his parents, seriously injuring his father and murdering his mother. Proverbs 19, 26. He who assaults his father and drives his mother away is a shameful and disgraceful son. Proverbs 17, 25. A foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. Proverbs 30, verse 11. There is a kind of man who curses his father and does not bless his mother. Every generation has had to contend with children failing to obey and honor their parents. In 1663, at age 23, Samuel Willard took the pulpit at a church on the fringes of the civilization of the New World. He was a transplant, part of the Great Migration out of England, who came to the United States as a Puritan. He was 35 miles northwest of Boston in a tiny town called Groton, where he would preach for 13 years before moving to Boston. But while in Groton, Pastor Willard came to the rescue of a terribly troubled 16-year-old girl in 1671. He'd been pastoring there for eight years. Elizabeth Knapp was her name. Elizabeth had been overcome with bouts of awful seizures, at times breaking out into hysterical fits, rantings, weeping, barking like a dog, even cursing her parents. Dustin Benji reports, as the fits progressed, the girl confessed to making a deal with the devil who instructed her to kill her parents and drowned herself in the well. The citizens of Groton assumed it was witchcraft. Pastor Willard, exercising caution and discernment, labored for many weeks and finally concluded the girl was indeed being demonically afflicted. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 15. Matthew 15. Demonic possession is the extreme result of dishonor and disobedience. It should not be a surprise to us that Satan and his demons are eager to help children engage in all manner of evil. So, you kids here today, you young men and women, my hope in sharing the story with you is to warn you. If you continue down a path of disobedience and dishonor of your parents, know this, as in the story of Elizabeth Knapp. Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. This is a negative motivation which I hope you find helpful as you consider your level of obedience and honor that is due to your parents. In our text, Paul is full of positive motivation for children to do honor and obedience very well in their homes as he grabs two Old Testament quotes from Moses and with great apostolic authority he merges them together here in Ephesians 6 verses 2 and 3 even dropping his own parenthetical comment right into the middle of the fifth command of the Decalogue which is the Ten Commandments that he plucked out of Deuteronomy 5.16. Honor is the Greek word tima which is a present imperative command requiring continuous honoring. Continuous honoring. It is not the case that you age out of your obligation to honor your mom and dad. This is what Jesus confronted in Matthew 15, where you are now. He's going to quote Deuteronomy 5 as he runs into some legalistic scribes and Pharisees who came out to question him about his disciples' failure to continuously honor the elders' tradition of washing their hands before they ate. They were the hand-washing Nazis, you could say. 
rebuking them, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15, verse 3, he said, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God says, Honor your father and mother. And he who speaks evil of his father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever I have that would be helped to you has been given to God, he is not to honor his father and mother. And by this, you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites! Rightly did Isaiah say of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. They would set aside money, land, possessions, unto God, air quotes, while their parents were alive. This way, when mom and dad needed care, they didn't have to provide care financially because their finances were already, you know it, given to God. However, after mom and dad died, they repurposed those finances that were given to God to make more profitable investments, to, to make a greater return for their own personal wealth and gain. Just got to make sure it happens after mom and dad pass away. Jesus exposed the dishonor to parents in their korban rule, as it's called, and how it violated the law of God. Go ahead and turn back in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 2. John MacArthur says, Children are to spend whatever time and money is necessary to care and provide for their parents, should the parents be no longer able to do so for themselves. Leviticus 19, verse 3 says, Every one of you shall revere and reverence his mother and his father. Children, what is your greatest motivation to honor mom and dad? It should be this. God commands honor and obedience from you for them. You should do obedience and honor because it's a command of God on you. Is your honor of parents motivated by the fear of God? It should be. Deuteronomy 27 verse 16 says this. Cursed is he who dishonors his father and mother. And all the people say amen. I wasn't saying that. That's in the text. What other motivations are in Paul's command for children? Well, Paul says in chapter 6, verses 2 and 3, honoring mom and dad is the first commandment with a promise so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Commentator Harold Honer says, this is a general principle of life designed by God for your well-being and long life on earth. He goes on to say, children who have obeyed and honored their parents are more likely to lead disciplined lives and the natural odds are for a balanced and long life for them. The promise is simply that blessing comes through obedience and honor. And one final thought regarding honor and obedience would be this. Does honor include obeying every command that your parents give to you? Is the command to obey your parents absolute? Now you know the answer to this because we just lived through this the last two years. Is the command of the government absolute? No. Is the command of the elder in the church absolute? No. Is the command of the parent absolute over the child? No. No, there's no absolute authority. John Stott offers a helpful illustration. Here's the illustration. It goes like this. He says, suppose a child is raised in a non-Christian home and is saved in that non-Christian home and desires to be baptized in a local church to show obedience to Christ. Suppose that his parents say, no, we don't want you getting baptized. Stott says, this young man will prove his faith and witness best to his parents by honoring their request to not be baptized. Stott says, 
Even baptism, though Jesus commanded it, can wait until you are older and the law of your country gives you a measure of independence. Happens at what age? At 18. On the other hand, Stott goes to say, if a Christian child is told by non-Christian parents to not worship, to not pray, to not follow Christ, then disobedience becomes necessary for righteousness. Stott notes in the parallel passage in Colossians chapter 3, verse 20, that Paul tells children to obey their parents in everything. Our present text is more restrictive, which gives Stott the basis to conclude with this thought, reconciling the two passages. He says this, Children are not to obey their parents in absolutely everything without exception, but in everything which is compatible with their primary loyalty, namely to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Be loyal to everything that someone tells you to do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, which matches up with Scripture. Families are redeemed when righteousness dominates the hearts of all who are in the home. For children, righteousness is obedience and honor for their parents who must be faithful to give their kids righteous commands to obey, which brings us to Paul's eighth relationship redemption strategy in our text. The eighth relationship redemption strategy in our text. We looked at number seven. We just concluded that. We'll go to the eighth of ten relationship redemption strategies in the text. We're going to turn and talk about parents. So number eight in your notes is parents raise your children. Parents raise your children. This is Paul's call for biblical parenting. We've got a class going on. It's not going to meet tonight. We did it last week. I sure hope that it's being helpful to those who are there. I know that's the case. And if you missed the first class, there's still an opportunity to join us, I would say. You see the command for biblical parenting right here in the text, which we went through last Sunday night. Ephesians 6.4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I told you about Elizabeth Knapp in 1671. She had made a deal with the devil. She was blessed in this. She was blessed in this. Her parents knew to call Pastor Samuel Willard to come speak with her. Now, they may have blown it with their parenting, failing to require Elizabeth's obedience, failing to discipline and instruct her in the Lord. They may have blown it in those, but they got it right on this one. When your daughter starts barking, you call the pastor. Now that's what we do. That's what we do. You call on the pastor to handle barking children. Pastor Samuel counseled Elizabeth because BCM, BCM, barking children matter. That's why he, he was there for that. Dustin Benji reports, through the ministry of scripture and prayer, through the ministry of scripture and prayer, the 31-year-old minister began to wear down Elizabeth to the point that she finally began to acknowledge her own sinfulness and ask, ask God for forgiveness. The fits eventually came to an end, and Willard was able to stave off a town-wide witch hysteria in 1671. Pastorally, he cared for her. Pastorally, he met her right where she is at, gave her identity, Gave her purpose, gave her meaning. From where? From the Bible. Not from culture, not from society, from the Word of God. Here in Ephesians 6 4, Paul addresses fathers with the word pateras. And certainly, he needs to speak to fathers who are the heads of their households. Ultimately, they are responsible for all discipline and instruction, parents are. And certainly, fathers are the most prone to need the negative command that comes first, which is do not provoke your children. However, 
It would be short-sighted to read this simply as fathers at the exclusion of mothers. Don't do that. Many places in your Bible use a masculine term to refer to both men and women. James Montgomery Boyce says, this does not exclude mothers, of course. It includes them in the same way that the word brothers is used to include all Christians in other passages of the Bible and because Paul is speaking of parents in the first three verses of chapter 6. And so parents, moms and dads, Ephesians 6.4 is for both of y'all. In this text, Paul gives two parenting directives which define biblical parenting. Paul issues two righteous decrees required for family redemption. What two righteous decrees define parenting and redeem families? Number one, never provoke your children. Never provoke your children. Number two, always provide for your children. Very simple outline. Never provoke your children. Always provide for your children. So with the time we have left, let's go racing through this text. Now you just gear it up for Oliver to hit like 150 words a minute. I'm pacing myself. Let's consider family redemption and and parental righteousness first in the negative with number one in your notes, the first of two righteous decrees for family redemption. Number one in your notes, never provoke your children. Paul says in the text, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. As I say that to you, I want to ask you some questions. How many of you were provoked to anger, bitterness, resentment by your parents? How hurtful was that to you? Did they have unrighteous rules? Did they have unreasonable expectations? Did they do this? Did they do this? Did your parents do this? Did they, like Pharisees, did they place burdens on your shoulders that your shoulders were never intended to carry at age 5 and 8 and 11? John Stott says parents misuse their authority by harshness and cruelty at one extreme or by favoritism and overindulgence at the other or by humiliating and suppressing them, or by those two vindictive weapons of sarcasm and ridicule. Stott asks the question, how many angry young men, hostile to society at large, have learned their hostility as children in an unsympathetic home? As we discussed, culturally, Jewish and Roman households were given over to angry dad syndrome all too often. Our culture can be the exact same way. The call here is for parents to recognize This life is not about you. This life is about Christ. It's about Him and what He wants to do and the redemption that He wants for your family. When you get angry with anyone, don't you understand that you've first been angry with God? Because He's orchestrating and navigating all the circumstances of your life. When you think about raising your fist and raising your voice to your child, can't you see? You're doing that to God before you do it to your child. Your anger is against God first. And Paul is saying, don't get angry. Never, never project unrighteous anger, bitterness, resentment, hostility, or impatience toward your children because they see your unrighteous ways. And they've got a built-in little righteous odometer right there in the back of their head. And they know what you're doing. And they know it's wrong on God's standard. They know it's wrong. And guess what? they will model that behavior right back at you in the day, in the weeks, in the years that follow. Harold Honer says, logically, the irritation caused by nagging and demeaning fathers in the context of everyday life may in turn cause children to become angry. This anger grows, no doubt, out 
of the frustration of never being able to please fathers who constantly nag or demean them. Pastor John MacArthur, he recalls a counseling case where a mother provoked a young woman. He arrived, Pastor John did, at the hospital where a young woman was confined to a padded cell and was in a state of catatonic shock. She was a Christian herself and had been raised in a Christian family, but her mother had ceaselessly pushed her to be the most popular, beautiful, successful girl in the school. She became the head cheerleader, homecoming queen, and later a model. But the pressure to excel became too great, and she had a complete mental collapse. After she was eventually released from the hospital, she went back into the same artificial, demanding environment at her home with her mother. And when again she found that she could not cope with the way that she was treated, she committed suicide. She had summed up her frustration to Pastor John when he told her one day before she committed suicide. She said this. She said, I don't care what it is that I do. It never satisfies my mother. Provoke is the word paragizo. It means to provoke to anger. It's the word in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that is used over and over and over again to describe Israel's provocation of God. Israel provoked God to anger. The same word. Parents, don't provoke your children to anger like Israel provoked God to anger. Negatively, we are never to provoke our children, which leaves us begging for positive biblical instruction, which we see next in the text. We come to a second of two righteous decrees for family redemption given to parents. Number two, always provide for your children. Always provide for your children. Number two, Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness for 40 days and responded to him in the first of three temptations by quoting Deuteronomy 8.3, saying in Matthew chapter 4, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Basic to our lives is the nourishment of God's commands and the pictures of his character found only in the Bible. And when you apply this most basic biblical truth To parenting, it sounds a lot like Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4b, where Paul says, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Proverbs 23. Proverbs 23, we'll look at verse 13. The Greek verb ektrepho is the verb that tells us bring up our children, bring them up, ektrepho. It means to nurture. It means to raise up. It means to grow up your children. And this verb is immediately qualified with how and what bringing up children requires. What is required for biblical parenting? What is required for family redemption? Well, first, Paul says that our kids need paideia. They need discipline, training, correction, which would include reasonable, honorable, God-fearing rules, guidelines, restrictions, and rewards, something I would say that our culture is completely running away from. Let the kids do whatever they want. Coddle them. Uh, four plus four, what's that equal? <laughs> Don't even tell me the answer. Four plus four, anyway. oh my goodness. Paideia is a systematic training of children. That's what paideia is. In the same way that the Navy understands training is an everyday activity which needs structure. The Navy knows discipline. Every ship in the Navy has a jail cell, a master at arms, who's the policeman, and they run fire drills every day. Parents, do you do discipline? What is the structure of your systematic training of your children? Do you know and practice corporal punishment for their disobedience? Do you spank the foolishness out of your children? This is paideia in action. It's one aspect of paideia, 
But spanking is right there a big part of discipline, isn't it? Well, we read that in the Bible. Proverbs 23, where you're at right now. Where Solomon, in all of his infinite wisdom, tells us about Paideia, saying in verse 13 of chapter 23 of Proverbs, he says, Do not hold back discipline from your, children, from your child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with the rod and rescue his soul from shale. It's an amazing thought, parents. It's an amazing thought, moms and dads, that God, that God entrusts us, parents, with his wrath. It's a precious thought that through biblical discipline, the spanking of a child, that you could remove the burden of sin and guilt and shame from your child for their disobedience by way of your obedience to God's command that you strike them with the rod. By the way, this is not striking a child with your hand or some other series of careless, provocative strikes issued while chasing a toddler around the house or a five-year-old around the house, displaying your own lack of total, total lack of self-control. It's not that at all. Far be it that your discipline ever takes that shape. What's described with Paideia and what's described in Proverbs 23 is a very intentional, patient, self-controlled discipline bathed in the context of biblical instruction and redemption, which is very rewarding to the soul of your child whose reasonable pain is momentary. That brings us then to a second qualification of bring them up. As we looked at Paideia, and we looked at just one aspect of Paideia, that of the rod and spanking a child, that form of discipline. Let's go to the second qualification of bring them up in the text. Second, our kids need to be instructed. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 12, verse 9, where we started our morning. Hebrews 12, verse 9. Second, after paideia, after discipline, our kids need instruction. According to Paul, bring them up requires instruction. The Greek word in the text is nuthateo. It's a great biblical counseling word. It literally means, nuthateo, instruction, it literally means to place into the mind. That's what nuthateo means. So this instruction has the aim of placing content into the minds of children. Parents are to place biblical instruction, biblical principles and values, biblical warnings and admonitions into the minds of their children, again and always in the content matching the Lord's righteousness. Instruction requires opening the Bible and sharing God's word with your children. Do you instruct in the car? Do you instruct at the dinner table? Do you instruct on the hiking and the biking trails? Do you instruct at the Walmart parking lot? Do you instruct your children? Are, are your kids receiving your biblical worldview by just being in your presence? Dads, how often are your kids in your presence to receive your instruction and learn from you your understanding of life, God, the world, their place in it? It really makes me wonder how many of you are thinking, golly, you know, Last week, we had a full hour on this, this topic, biblical parenting. And I can only imagine some of you are saying, golly, golly, my parents sure failed to both paideia and nuthateo me. My parents failed to discipline and instruct me. If that's your thought right now, think this thought next. Don't let your mind get stuck on that thought that your parents failed you. Don't, don't let your mind get stuck there. Here's why. The answer to that thought is God is sovereign. That's the answer to that thought. You put that thought in its place by saying, God is sovereign. Because where are you today? Where are you right now? 
you're in a loving, caring, God-honoring, God-fearing environment. And, and the God of all grace, through whatever he heavy-handedly brought you through in your youth, he's navigated you right here where there's comfort, peace, joy, and love. So you take that thought and you make it captive and make it conform to Christ and you know that God sovereignly appointed your parents for you with all of the difficulties that came with that. God knows exactly the discipline that we personally need and the battle that you need to engage in in your early years and even now. He knows the battles as he contends with your own personal sinful heart. That's who he's contending with, is your own sinful heart. You're in Hebrews 12. God says as much here through the author of Hebrews. He says this thought exactly. He says, furthermore, in verse 9, he says, furthermore, in Hebrews 12, 9, we had earthly fathers to, to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of... Oh boy, there's that word again. It, you almost think I planned it. <laughs> it's the Bible. It, the word shows up over... There it is. The peaceful fruit of righteousness. Brothers and sisters, you're now at Community Bible Church. You're in a local church receiving truth, doing righteousness, and I would just tell you, rejoice. Rejoice that God has you here. Rejoice that he's given you these brothers and sisters in Christ. Rejoice and receive and deliver Paul's parenting commands for family redemption to your family so that you have more of a relationship with your kids than your parents have with you. Do that. Do that to the glory of God. Do that to the building up of the church. Do that. Parents, you've been instructed and now you must obey. Neither God nor your children need you to be a perfect parent. No one's asking that of you. That would be a burden placed on your shoulders that you were never intended to bear. If I put that burden on you ever, if that came from me to you, then I'm a Pharisee. I don't want to do that to you. I let the text burden you. And you put it into practice on your time as you see the righteousness of God needed to be displayed in your own life. You need to be faithful, informed, convicted by the scripture of your failings and repentant for them. You need to be motivated by the love of Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, and in full pursuit of the glory of God. This is the path of wise walking biblical parenting, and it is the path of family redemption. William Barclay tells a story of a painter named Benjamin West. I'll give you this to close our time. Painter named Benjamin West. He was a young man, and one day his mother went out, leaving him in charge of his, sis his younger sister, whose name was Sally. So Benjamin's in charge, right? Mom's out of the house. You know, the, you know the scenario. In his mother's absence, he discovered some bottles of colored ink and decided to paint his sister's portrait, and he made an awful mess. But when his mother came back, she said nothing about the terrible ink stains. Instead, she picked up the piece of paper on which he had been working and exclaimed, Why, it's Sally! Then she stooped down, and she kissed him and said, "My mother's," And he said about this, My mother's kiss made me a painter. What will God make of the children in our redeemed families when our children obey and parents provide discipline and instruction in the Lord? Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this text. Thank you for the conviction that it bears down on our hearts. We need it. We need the rebuke. We need the exhortation. We need the admonishment. To be the children that honor and obey our parents, certainly, and to be the parents who don't provoke children, 
but do the discipline and instruction required for your glory. Help us with that, Lord. There's wonderful righteousness at the end of that trail. The peaceable fruit of righteousness is sitting right there for us as a church. We want to be there. As we look toward heaven and our eternal glory with you, let us have the fruit of that joy here on this earth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.